Okay. Wombats are great. Kookaburra, scratch the emu. It's a wombat, folks. Our publishing house in Australia is a wombat. (laughs) Wombat books. This is this is the only way forward for us. And also, those square poos would be great to put in. You know, uh, like when you're shipping them overseas. Nice square parcels. You're not wasting space. Fantastic. Power to those. Um, Now. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Pleasure of the Text podcast, a shared imaginary space where readers and writers make meaning together. We're your hosts, Shannon Gareth. Hello, everyone. And re-entering part two of our series on sensitivity readers, publishers, censorship, what's happening in the world. So firstly, I highly recommend going back and listening to part one first and then jumping back over to this segment that we're going to be completing. So we finished part one talking about how realistically when it comes to sensitivity readers and censorship and the publishing industry and diversity, we're talking about the future of fiction. And this is something uh, you and I, Gareth, are really passionate about. And this is something that as a society, as a group of people, and we're readers, we love reading books, we really need to kind of nut this out because something's happening. It's big. And I don't know if it's the pendulum is swinging in the right direction. What are your thoughts on that? Um, well, I guess, uh, you know, uh, initially my thought is, is this a pendulum situation? Um, and I, I don't know, but my, my instinct says it isn't. Um, I think, you know, you, you and I have established that we do believe that diversity in literature is important and um, has thus far not been a priority uh, particularly. Um, but we're also discovering that some of the the tools of, of diversification seem to be quite flawed and in many ways seem to be doing the opposite of what they, uh, what they claim to be doing. Um, and I think we ended last time in, in terms of the, uh, the content that we were talking about, we're talking about, um, inequality in publishing and I've got, I've got a few little articles here, uh, shockingly, uh, um, these are extremely <laughs> up to date. Um, so I might I might read the first one to you. Uh, uh, now it's by Samantha Forge, and it's from the uh, the website Kill Your Darlings, which is a wonderful name for a writing website. the um, The article is called Australian Publishing's Pay Problem. Now, uh, uh, you know, obviously, you and I, uh, Shannon, are hoping to reach a wider audience, but you know. Um, there is the Australian context to consider as well. It's, it's, it's easy to get kind of, uh, obsessed with the American scene because there is a sort of a representation of the American scene as being universal, um, which in some ways it isn't in the, in terms of this topic. So, all right. Yeah. The article begins, this news will surprise no one currently employed in the book publishing industry where low wages are the source of many a mildly despairing joke at the office Christmas party. Still, the figures in the books and publishing survey are sobering, if only because they lay bare that which we've long suspected. 
The average reported full-time wage for non-managerial publishing staff ranges from $52,265 per year for production staff to $62,347 per year for editorial. Things are even worse for booksellers, who reported an average full-time wage of $49,433 per year, which is an 8% fall from the previous 2013 survey. In contrast, the average full-time adult wage in Australia is $82,472 per year. There's a sense among well-meaning, book-loving publishing workers that low wages are indicative of a struggling business model, and that to ask for more collectively would be to further imperil the structural integrity of the industry, and thus literary culture itself. In fact, the Australian book publishing industry is predicted to earn $1.4 billion in revenue for the 2018-2019 financial year with a profit, a profit, folks, of $109.7 million. Uh, the Ibis World Report notes that in the publishing industry as a whole, wage costs are moderate compared with purchase costs. In other words, staff are cheap compared to paper. In the 2018-2019 financial year, the report estimates that wage costs will, o- will account for only 19.43% of total industry revenue, or $280.5 million. On average, publishing industry staff generate $302,000 of revenue per employee. Despite these figures being common knowledge, there is very little in the way of agitation amongst publishing industry employees for higher wages on a collective scale. As of writing, there has been no official comment. The B plus P report from the industry's union, the Media Entertainment Arts Alliance, the MEAA. I'll go to the end of this because there's only one more paragraph. But being able to accept lower wages in order to do more creative work is a privilege and not in the we should be grateful sense. It is a privilege in that it is a luxury reserved for only those who can afford it, a self-selecting system that ensures that disadvantaged members of society never even make it into the interview rooms. For an industry that purports to understand the need for diverse voices, it is remarkable how non-diverse we remain. 93% of respondents to the B plus P survey were white, In this sense, once again, diversity is a class issue. By making a career in publishing possible only for the comparatively wealthy, we exclude the voices of those we most need at the heart of our cultural production. Asking for competitive wages is not just about adequate compensation. It's about ensuring that everyone has the opportunity to choose to do what they love and contribute to our literary culture rather than than just those who can afford to. What do you think? Yeah. It's a great article. And there's one other thing that I want to add to that because I Mm. also read a similar review on the publishing industry. And to even get your foot in the door, regardless of the talk of pay and compensation, they need you or they desire you to have a master's. So not only 
And again, that's a question of um, class and privilege because you've got to go, had the capacity to go to university and support yourself through university in a bachelor's degree and then do that again in a master's degree. So, you know, it, the, at every step of the way, there seems to be um, issues of accessibility into the publishing industry by diverse people. Right. So, I mean, scholarships uh, funded by the publishing industry, you know, they're kind of rolling in some money here. Uh, you know, a, a few scholarships wouldn't go amiss, would would they? Um, but also, no. yeah, there's the collective bargaining is just not there. It's a little bit different if we head overseas, back to America. You know, we only we popped into Australia briefly. Now, this one was in the Washington Post. So I've got I've got two very short articles, uh, and this is about uh, some recent um, industrial action that has been occurring. So <clears throat> HarperCollins staffers are striking. Here's why that matters to readers. Uh, this is by Maham Javid. Okay. Maham writes, outside of HarperCollins, Industry professionals such as Molly McGee believe that the result of the strike will set a precedent for the type of books readers will get to read for years to come. She says, in the last decade, book outputs have increased and editorial staff has decreased. Um, It should be noted that uh, Molly McGee has worked for various publishers for eight years, so she's very much an industry professional. In the know. Uh, she continues, unless enough diverse editors have the time to read and push forward unique books, CEOs will only greenlight the types of books that have previously made money. End quote. The skewed ratio of books to editors leads to crashing. Have you heard of crashing before, Shannon? Uh, no, I haven't. So I'd love you to tell me about it. So basically, uh, you know, it, it, the crashing means you you uh, rush books through production, um, and you know you might give it a bit of a brush up. You might as well not have bothered. Like you, you might improve it a bit, but there is a there is an expectation readers have uh, that you know if if you have one of those big five publishers, you have the little insignia on the spine there. It's a uh, can I stop you there and just ask for the audience who are the big five publishing houses that we're referring to? Yeah, right. Okay, so so you've got Penguin Random House. They're, they're together now, Penguin Random House. Um, you've got Hachette, you've got HarperCollins, you've got uh, Macmillan, and you've got Simon and & Schuster. And it should be noted yeah. that these all exist in a big bubble in New York. They do have offices in other places, but essentially the center of publishing power in our part of the world is in New York. Um, that's another barrier to enter into the industry. I don't know that many people that can live in New York. Well, certainly if you want to be where the action is. I mean, uh, you know, publishers have uh, offices around the world, but no, nevertheless um, they are in a sense centered in that one city. Uh, now you imagine working for them over there, uh, you know, New York housing prices and stuff. It, it's very difficult for, I would imagine for an editor to, um, uh, 
to, to basically get by, unless, of course, you know, they, they have money already in one form or another. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, basically, uh, crashing is is rushing books through production, essentially. You're crashing them through. Uh, and you don't know um, what bits are going to be left out. Uh, one would imagine that the... It may it may be that there is one edit structural copy proof all in one go, um, or it may be that you just don't do a structural edit; you just do a copy edit or a proofread. So, it's not really it's not really good enough, is it? When you got the little got the little penguins and the other little symbols, and you're thinking, yeah, this must be yeah. a quality product. Um, because those symbols, when I Originally, when you pick up a Penguin book, you think quality. You think this is at least going to be a decent read. Yeah, and there's no guarantee of that. Um, and again, these are publishers that are making pretty significant profits too. Uh, and the cost of staff is low. They could hire more staff. They could pay the staff they have more money. Um, and this is basically what the HarperCollins staffers were arguing. Um, so McGee goes on to say, one out of every 20 books can be crashed, but right now the statistic is closer to 10 out of 20. So roughly half. One out of two. Yeah. Yeah, one out of two. Uh, one out of two. She goes on, reading is a love that is cultivated, and right now publishing houses are disrespecting readers by putting out books that are being rushed through production. It's an open, open secret that agents are filling in editorial roles because editors are swamped. So now that's a bit of perspective about why the HarperCollins uh, staffers were striking. And it should be noted yeah. that HarperCollins, out of the big five, HarperCollins is the only one with a, with a union. Um, now... What they were asking for is incredibly modest. Uh, you'll be shocked. So the second article, it's about the same length. This gives you more of the specific uh, detail. So HarperCollins Union approves contract, ends three-month strike. Now, that was uh, in February. So it was from November 2022, roughly, to February 2023. Um, so Hillel Itali writes this one. Striking union members at HarperCollins Publishers have approved a tentative agreement reached last week and will return to work Tuesday, ending a walkout that lasted more than three months and became the centre of an ongoing debate about salaries in the industry. More than 200 members, from editorial assistants to publicists and designers, went on strike in early November with wages, workplace diversity and union protection among the issues. Under the new terms, reached after HarperCollins agreed in late January to negotiations with a federal mediator, annual starting pay will increase to $47,500 upon ratification and rise to $50,000 by the beginning of 2025. In addition, full-time employees in the union will receive lump sum payments of $1,500. Now, you may notice a tone in, in my reading here. So 
basically they're getting about somewhere between a five and 10% pay rise. Um, but they are really underpaid. And this does not resolve that issue, but it, you know, it is a win for collective bargaining, but there's more. So finishing off the article, HarperCollins owned by Rupert Murdoch's News Corp is the only major New York publisher with a union. Hundreds of authors and agents had backed the striking HarperCollins workers, and in recent weeks, both Macmillan and Hachette Book Group had announced they were raising starting salaries, which ranged from 45000 to 50000 among the larger companies. The agreement came amid HarperCollins' plan to reduce its North American workforce by 5% through layoffs and attrition. The publisher has cited reduced revenues over the past year, and higher costs. So uh, the publishers are going to come out ahead because obviously if you reduce staff by 5%, that's going to cover the uh, the pay rise and so much more. Um, yeah, but that doesn't solve the problem of crashing books, right? That makes it doesn't it solve worse. any problem. Yeah, it does. It does. And it's a, it's a very, uh, you know, cynical move. So, I mean, the thing about the big five publishers is they're disproportionately dominant in terms of revenue from book sales. So in 2021, they generated over $12 billion per year of revenue. Um, Collectively. I mean, it's a lot, isn't it? So there was a dip early this year. You know, shocker. It, It does happen. But, I mean, the trend has been upwards. It's been rising at a rate of about 4.8% a year since 2016. And in 2021 alone, uh, revenue went up by 9.92%. So these are not people on the the breadline. You know, these big five publishers are raking in the bucks, selling, you know, substandard books and essentially showing a callous disregard for the staff they have. And it's certainly, you know, I mean – where would a more diverse culture come from in that scenario? Yeah. It, it's quite extraordinary. Um, now, I think there was an 11% drop in revenue in the first quarter of this year. Um, but, you know, I mean, let's see what happens by the end of the year. Things go up, things go down. Uh, you know, it doesn't make sense uh, that one quarter's drop would necessitate these kind of cuts, particularly when you've got, yeah, crashing books, people burning out. Um, But this is, you know, this is some union work. Uh, They got an agreement, but but ultimately it's about profits. Uh, You know, if HarperCollins had negotiated in good faith, they wouldn't have immediately reduced their workforce. Yeah, I see. Gosh. Yeah, so that's a big problem, and uh, I, I don't have any answers for it. Do you have any thoughts? Is there something we could do? I don't know. It's a hard one. I mean, not a fan of Rupert Murdoch to begin with. I don't know how much control he had over um, Colin negotiating in good faith and you know trying to keep true to your profit line. And I think there is a friction between because, I mean, we're both readers and we love books and there is a social 
um, element to reading and being a publisher. But I mean, that has a friction with it being a business model within a capitalistic system. So, I mean, I don't know. It depends what we value as readers. I would, I happily go to a bookstore and spend $35 to $40 on a book. And I want to know as a consumer that that money is going to the right places. And it doesn't seem like it is. It's not going to the author. It's not going to the editorial teams. It's not going to all these hard workers and designers for the book. So where is it going? Uh, shareholders maybe yeah so really maybe creating co-ops instead of corporations might be a great idea yeah I, I think that makes sense and if if publishing wants to grow and prosper surely catering to a wider audience is a good commercial decision and is there a reason they don't is there risk involved at all yeah yeah no that is the argument that there is a risk there's no audience there so in other words if you look at who's buying the books that are being put out, they are uh, at the very least predominantly white. Um, there are there are other factors as well, um, and so therefore, you know, you don't want to try selling them something that doesn't reflect their lived experience. Now, I find that argument odd in the first instance, but also it's it's circular logic. I mean, you don't put out a product that you think, if you take an essentialist view and that white people only want to read white authors, which again, I, I think is nonsense, um, then you would say that people who aren't white, people of color only want to read authors who are also people of color, but you don't put those books out. And then you say there's no readership. I mean, maybe if you put the books out, there would be a readership and there you would have something. But it seems like a very circular argument to me. And, and I think yeah. these, you know, these I companies agree. make money, right? They make money for the people at the top of them. I think, you know, this is not something really uh, that you and I or, or any sort of person on the street can directly affect. Um, where if, you know, you'll see greater diversity through smaller publishers. So, you know, if you want to seek them out, do that, and that will, you know, raise their revenue, and that is your commercial argument, basically. And if, you know, if, if you don't feel that there is enough diversity then, uh, you know, there, is, there are pathways. You know, I mean, if you're an author, you could self-publish, although personally I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend that. But, I mean, also you could um, look at building a cooperative and starting a publishing house. You could do all those things. You know, it, you don't have to wait for the people at the top to trickle down to you. You, you know, we can actually decide uh, to start building our own penguins, if you like. Uh, what would our penguin yeah. be? And I don't know. It just feels like the kind of frivolous thing I always want to talk about. I, you know, the kookaburra. Uh, a kookaburra. Yeah. Um, what else? I think wombats are really cute. Oh, wombats are great, aren't An they? An emu. Yeah. You can't go wrong with the emu. You really can't. I mean, I don't think emus would be great readers. Um, wombats, though, are incredibly intelligent animals uh, with, with quite profound reading skills. And they are very kind to other species. You know, they, they have empathy. Yes. 
So that that could be the that could be the that way forward. Really cool. I want to follow on that because besides the really cool point that so wombats poo and their poo is shaped in cubes, you know, that's already pretty cool. But um, during the bushfires that we had, we've had a few in Australia, um, they actually help herd other animals into their wombat holes to protect them. How cool is that? Okay. Wombats are great. Kookaburras. Yeah, scratch the emu. It's a wombat, folks. Our publishing house in Australia is a wombat. <laughs> wombat books. This is this is the only way forward for us. So yeah, now before we jump over, so so we've talked about sort of unionized power and how collectives can at least try to uh, wrestle some of the power away from corporate America, if you like. And, and then that, that sort of brings up a, a sort of a broader point about the the kinds of censorship that exist. Um, and I've got a, a good one here from the New York Times. Uh, There's more than one way to ban a book, writes Pamela Paul. Uh, and I, I think this is a good grounding for what we're about to start talking about. So over the course of his long career, John Sargent, who was chief executive of Macmillan until last year, and is widely respected in the industry for his staunch defense of freedom of expression, witnessed the growing forces of censorship outside the industry with overt book banning efforts on the political right. We talked about those last week, but also within the industry through self-censorship and fear of public outcry from those on the far left. Quote, it's happening on both sides, Sargent told me recently. It's just a different mechanism. On the right, it's going through institutions and school boards. And on the left, it's using social media as a tool of activism. It's aggressively protesting to increase the pain threshold until there's censorship going the other way, end quote. In the face of those pressures, publishers have adopted a defensive crouch, taking preemptive measures to avoid controversy and criticism. Now, many books the left might object to never make it to bookshelves because a softer form of banishment happens earlier in the publishing process. Scuttling a project for ideological reasons before a deal is signed or diffusing or eliminating sensitive material in the course of editing. Even when a potentially controversial book does find its way into print, other gatekeepers in the book world, the literary press, librarians, independent bookstores may not review, acquire, or sell it, limiting the book's ability to succeed in the marketplace. It is certainly true that not every book deserves to be published, but those decisions should be based on the quality of a book as judged by editors and publishers, not in response to a threatened, perceived, or real political litmus test. The heart of publishing lies in taking risks, not avoiding them. We shouldn't capitulate to any repressive forces, no matter where they emanate from on the political spectrum. Parents, schools, and readers should demand access to all kinds of books, whether they personally approve of the content or not. For those on the illiberal left to conduct their own campaigns of censorship while bemoaning the book-burning impulses of the right is to violate the core tenets of liberalism. We're better than this. And I, I, yeah, I would agree with that. So, I mean, what we were talking about last week was really a conservative 
distrust of censorship. And when, I, when I say conservative, I'm talking about the political right. But we also have censorship on the left. It's across, it's across the political spectrum. Um, and, you know, I, w- I would argue that we could forget about this whole left-right dynamic for a minute and realize there's a more human problem. And I think it, it exists on that other axis between authoritarianism and libertarianism. And, uh, you know, the, the drive to get control is understandable, um, but, but freedoms are really vital in a democracy. You know, I don't like authoritarian impulses. I'm not not on board yeah. the idea of any group telling everyone what to do. Or how to think. Or, or what think. they can produce. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and so following up on that, you said something, you know, tools of activism, talking about diversity in the publishing world and trying to get these diverse voices there so we have access to them as readers. There was a label coined uh, called Own Voices Label, Mm. Uh, and I'm just going to read some sections from uh, an article by Grace LaPointe, What Happened to the Own Voices Label. So on Twitter in 2015, Corrine, a white disabled bisexual author from the Netherlands, coined the hashtag, hashtag Own Voices. A SFF young adult author, she was initially looking for kid lit book recommendations. Her hashtag would have a broad impact on offline and online conversations and the publishing industry in general. It went viral across genres, age groups, and marginalized identities. Corrine later clarified that any marginalized author could call their fiction own voices as long as the protagonist and the author shared a marginalized identity. The term own voices resonated with many people encapsulating ongoing conversations regarding diversity and authenticity in publishing. Prioritizing authors who share marginalized identities with their protagonists might seem obvious now, but it was a game changer. Ironically, even when acknowledging the need for diverse books, publishing still often sidelines diverse authors. Paradoxically, the own voices label can be both too vague and too specific. If a white writer created a protagonist of colour who had the writer's own disability, for example, it would seem misleading to call the story own voices. However, readers shouldn't presume they know intimate details of an author's personal life like diagnoses, sexual orientation, relationships, ethnicity or religion just by reading their fiction, nor are they entitled to no judge or speculate on these details. Well, I mean, I think, you know, as a... As a sort of a side genre, I don't even know what you'd call it. As a designation within publishing, own voices seems fine to me. Like, like so, basically, if it's just a a label you can place on a book that will allow readers who want a connection between the author and the text, um, you know, they want a direct uh, lived experience connection. Between author and their protagonist, then you know it doesn't seem like a problem to me to use such a term. But is that all it is? I wonder. He says, knowing otherwise. Yeah, until it does become a problem, right? <laughs> right. Well, yeah. I mean, but it do, it doesn't have to become a problem. But it but it obviously 
obviously has. Yeah, so I so I have an example for this. Um, this is from uh, Reason Magazine. Uh, it's about sensitivity readers. Uh, it's an article by Kat uh, Rosenfield. Now, there, there's aspects to this article which um, I suppose we've we've already rejected uh, in terms of the focus of sensitivity readers in some way having some sort of power in this this whole situation. So we'll uh, we'll ignore all of that. Uh, so Alberto Gulaba Jr was the type of author the publishers dream of having in their catalogs. A first-generation college grad, a child of working-class immigrants, and the recent recipient of a Master of Fine Arts degree from the prestigious University of California, Irvine program, Galaba was a debut novelist with a gift for visceral and vivid prose. His first book, University Thugs, had all the makings of a smash hit. A work of character-driven literary fiction steeped in immersive vernacular, it tells the story of a young black man named Titus who is trying to make his way at an elite university in the wake of a criminal conviction. All while the school is being rocked by racial scandals, not unlike the racial reckoning that consumed so many American institutions in the summer of 2020. Galaba's agent knew he had something special, and he was excited for a big submission push. But on the eve of sending the manuscript out to publishers, the agent suggested Galaba update his bio to emphasize his racial identity. Publishers, he reasoned, would be excited to support a young black writer fresh on the literary scene. There was a problem. Galaba is Filipino. So this was a complete misunderstanding. When uh, when Galaba and his agent met, uh, well, when, they, when Galaba submitted his work to the agent and the agent signed him, they had not met face-to-face. And uh, he, he reasons that the agent just thought it was an African-American name or a name by way of Africa. Um, and it never occurred to the agent that, that um, Galaba was a, a Filipino-American. What's interesting about this is that he was writing about his own community so he was a part of that community, um, uh, you know, a predominantly African-American area. Uh, so whilst he wasn't African-American himself, one could argue that at the very least there was a great deal of overlap in lived experience and he had a lot of people to look at his work and say yay or nay. Um, really the kind of thing we were talking about before research is done. And, you know, I would say he was writing from his own experience primarily. So this is what happened next. Galaba was asked by his agent to add an Asian character, East Asian specifically, perhaps a Pacific Islander. Then it was suggested that Titus's wingman, the biggest secondary character should also be assigned an Asian identity. And there was one more bizarre twist. Another agency employee, who we'll call Sally, was brought in at the 11th hour to read the book and provide additional feedback. Sally, the agent explained, was black. Now, unsurprisingly, uh, Rosenfeld writes, the rise of sensitivity readers has proved controversial. Those who support it insist that they're no different from subject matter experts, 
not unlike the physician who proofreads a medical thriller to make sure the science is right. Critics, on the other hand, balk at the idea that being a member of a given demographic automatically conveys special knowledge about how everyone else in that group thinks or feels. In Galaba's case, his sensitivity reader had been born in the Caribbean and raised in the UK. The idea that she could speak to the authenticity of a young black ex-convict's experience at an American university is comical. At a moment of ascendant identitarianism in so many institutions, sensitivity reading seems part of a larger insidious trend in the arts, one that stigmatizes imagination and would, taken to its logical conclusion, make fiction itself categorically impossible. Now, we've already covered the, the sensitivity readers, and I, and I think, you know, I think sensitivity readers exist because publishers are ticking boxes. Uh, and I think in terms of, again, you know, if you're that interested in a topic, you should be immersed in it as much as you can be. You know, obviously, if you're writing about the uh, yeah. Salem witch trials, uh, you, you're going to struggle to get some lived experience. But, you know, you can still immerse yourself in the history and perhaps talk to some descendants and you can do all kinds of stuff. And I, I would agree that that's the author's responsibility. You know, if they're, if they're trying yeah. to create something of value, they shouldn't trip over the first authenticity hurdle. Uh, and publishers should be more diverse. So, like, I would agree that sensitivity readers are not a long-term solution, certainly. I, I do think, though, they are subject matter experts insofar as one could be um, about any specific yeah. thing. Yeah. So you want your sensitivity reader or, sorry, your editor to be um, an expert on the subject matter that you're writing about. You're not picking this person based on their uh, skin colour, on their gender or anything like that because that doesn't really relate to the subject necessarily that that person needs to be an expert on. And that's the issue that happened here, right? Yeah. I mean, in this case, it was a skin colour thing. Um, yeah. Now, Sally couldn't possibly be more of an authority um, than Alberto was. Uh, now, if they really thought yeah. it was necessary to find someone, an authentic voice, what they could have done is gone and hired um, one of Galaba Jr.'s friends. Or they could have saved their money and realized that, you know, he was living this experience in a sense and he had friends that were living this experience in a sense. And, you know, the question of authenticity seems a bit redundant unless you're taking an essentialist view that the only person who can mm -hmm. ever write a story about an African-American ex-convent going to university uh, is an African-American ex-convict who's going to university. Uh, and surely, you know, that's problematic. So, yeah, that's, um, that, I think that's yeah. a very unfortunate thing. So, and the publishers wanted, it sounds like they wanted a book of own voice. And then they saw him in person and they thought this is not going to work. 
Well, this is the other aspect of it. It wasn't even a publisher. It was the agent. So we have all these gatekeepers. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, the agent. The yeah. agent um, wasn't willing to really, in a sense, fight for their clients. Say, no, we think this book stands up. You know, prove us wrong. Uh, and this is one of the problems with the author reading in general. There's another uh, little bit uh, in this, and, and we made a promise that I was going to talk about the men, something I have not been looking forward to doing. Um, however... I did promise, so I will. I will say what I think needs to be said here. Um, now I'm going back to Rosenfield's article for for the setup of this. So she writes, "When the men, Sandra Newman's sci-fi novel in which everyone with a Y chromosome suddenly vanishes from the face of the earth, came under fire for what critics termed the transphobic implication that people with Y chromosomes are men." One of the chief questions was whether the author had engaged a trans sensitivity reader. But when Newman said that, yes, she had, the outrage only multiplied. Why had she hired only one sensitivity reader? Did she think this was an excuse? Um, so, you know, I mean, the, the implication there is you keep hiring sensitivity readers until one of them tells you you shouldn't be writing the book. Uh, it's a bit of a strange argument. It, it sort of relies on the idea that there is a correct way of looking at this situation and therefore we just need to keep trying our best to get to that point without ever, you know, critiquing whether it is the correct answer. I think that's very problematic. And I think the premise of the men that people with a Y chromosome disappear from the face of the earth is not transphobic. I don't see how anyone could make that argument legitimately. And, I, and I, I'll give you a good example of this. Philip K. Dick, his perhaps his most famous work is um, The Man in the High, uh, High Tower. Now, that is about what would happen if the Axis powers, the Nazis and, and others, had won World War II. Are we now to say that by considering that possibility, Philip K. Dick was a Nazi. And, and that's basically what we're, we're coming down to here. If people with a Y chromosome disappear, that will include trans women as well as, as men. Uh, so, you know, it's set up, it's, it's based in a particular field of science. It's not inaccurate, and science does not set... Um, political agendas. So, so really, you know, this is not, it can't be transphobic simply based on its premise. I feel that very strongly. I will argue with anyone all the way to the hellscape that the men end up on in the men. And, and that's what happens. The men, and I'm spoilers, folks. Uh, if you want to read this book, now is the time to cover your ears. Um, but anyway, so what happens is in, in Newman's book, the the men are found. They're on some sort of cable TV show. I mean, there's no host or anything. It's just you can see them on TV and they're in some hellscape like Dante's Inferno. And you'll have images of them standing there with their mouths opening and closing like fish or something. You can't hear what they're saying. And it's quite, I think it's quite a, a chilling image. Um, and... 
you know, I read the book, I read the book for this, uh, for this podcast. And I have to say that that aspect of it, I think is really, really good. Now, what does this have to do with this X, Y idea? Well, it has nothing to do with it. And then when we get to the end of the book, arguably, some people disagree, but arguably it does appear as if the ending of the book is, it was all a dream. Now, from a purely literary standpoint, uh, I suppose it would be possible to resuscitate that trope of a story ending with, and it was all a dream. I don't think Newman does this. So, so we have, we have a dream. We have a kind of a, I was reminded of um, David Cronenberg, uh, his films with these video people like trapped inside of a video. Uh, and, and then we have the science sort of angle, which is not really dealt with in, in, in any way at all. And so I think you could say, I think you could say that as a premise, it's very gratuitous in that it serves no other function in the story. Um, and arguably there are far more nuanced ways of looking, particularly because she called the book, the men, uh, at looking at men and women. Uh, now I'm not suggesting that including trans women is, uh, instantly problematic, but I do think from a literary standpoint, from the point of view of this book, having something to say, um, having the XY premise calling the book, the men was going to uh, spark a certain degree of interest and then to do nothing with it seems quite irresponsible. So it's not transphobic, but it is gratuitous. And yeah. I don't understand why the book got published, to be honest. I, th I think it needed not just a sensitivity read, but like a serious structural edit and, uh, and, you know, maybe a back to the drawing board kind of approach. But that's Sandra Newman's The Men. Read it or don't read it. Uh, my giving away the ending will not lessen your enjoyment of this book. I can guarantee that. So I think, you know, I think that's a good example of, you know, how it's, it's very easy, isn't it, to, to latch on to one idea or another, to take one conception of identity such as skin color and and mix that up with cultural background um can you top these great examples because you know, they're pretty they're pretty solid have we reached the depths of absurdity yet or is there another layer of hell to be found i wish we had reached the depth and there is another layer so this is another article by kat rosenfield what is hashtag own voices doing to our books in May of 2018, young adult fiction author Cosico Jackson wrote a tweet that would come to haunt him. Quote, stories about the civil rights movement should be written by black people. Stories of suffrage should be written by women. Ergo, stories about boys during horrific and life-changing times like the AIDS epidemic should be written by gay men. Why is this so hard to get? End quote. Jackson's stated belief that stories about marginalised people should be written by authors of the same identity group is a common one in young adult fiction. It's also the central ethos of a movement known as Hashtag Own Voices, which aims to improve diversity in the industry by matching authors to subject matter. It's not hard to see why it caught on. 
what better way to improve the representation of marginalized authors than to have them write what they know or what they are? Who better to capture these stories than someone who shares an identity with the main character? Not only would the books be more diverse, the logic goes, but that would be more honest too. But in its present form, the impact of this movement has turned increasingly toxic, leading to call-outs, controversy, and cancelled books, often for the underrepresented authors it was supposed to help. And no author learnt this lesson more harshly than Jackson. His debut novel, A Place for Wolves, was set to publish March 26, but was cancelled for not being hashtag own voices enough instead. The main character in A Place for Wolves is gay and black, like Jackson himself. But none of that mattered when an online reviewer accused the author of appropriating a setting, war-torn Kosovo in 1990s, that he wasn't qualified or entitled to write about. This story, critics said, was not his to tell, and Jackson responded by pulling A Place for Wolves less than a month from publication. It was a costly choice, not just for the author, but also for his publisher who had to pulp the 55,000 copies of the book that had already been printed. Jeez. So he was on the right path. His main character was gay, he was black, he was American, but he'd been put into what was the fictionalised version of war-torn Kosovo and um, got ripped to shreds because of that for wanting to lean into that imaginative space. I haven't read the book, so I don't know if he's done this well or he hasn't but if you follow this line of thinking of only writing from your lived experience what happens to the world of fiction and you eventually start writing about a person sitting down at a desk writing story about a person sitting down at a desk who's writing about a story of a person who's sitting down at a desk like where does this end of you know always following in the laneway of your own lived experience Mm, it's an impossible trap. And I mean, let's say, for example, um, you know, hashtag own voices proponents were saying, oh, no, look, it's fine. Uh, other people can write about these things, but they, you know, there should be a distinction made, hashtag own voices. Um, they're not saying that. Uh, but even if they were, people need to recognize that an author is not the single voice represented by their book. So if you want to say own voices, right, you would need to make sure your editors, who, who often make a big contribution, also share the same lived experience. And you would presumably, as Kirkus likes to do, uh, make sure all your reviewers also share the same lived experience. The booksellers perhaps as well. Uh, and most importantly, the readers because that is the, that is where this all goes it goes into shoving readers as well into specific boxes uh now yeah. we were talking it about means the f- that yeah it means that i as a white cis woman can't enjoy a book by a male who's writing about aliens exactly and you know that that author um, and let's say they were an own voices author who'd had alien experiences, uh, you know, that's it. That's what they get to write about. Um, and, you know, that's obviously problematic. It's, it's shoving everyone in boxes. I think uh, th- there is a commercial 
uh, drive behind own voices, or there could be in the, there are people who state that they like stories that are true and including fiction that is true. And, you know, there's not much you can do about arguing with that, but, uh, you know, like, so Kosoko Jackson fell down with his setting. Now I understood the issue was the protagonist, but apparently it's the setting as well. And one would assume the secondary characters. I mean, if the setting's fair game, so are the secondary characters. So now from my position, I'm going to have to write uh, stories in which every book I ever write from now on will be called The Women, and it'll be how all the women disappeared, Uh, you know, because because I'm male. Or maybe it should be the people of colour who disappeared because I'm white. And, you know, the the truth is that we are many things. We are many things. And it's not a workable solution because – you keep going to these smaller and smaller degrees. Um, And, you know, we can agree, I think, a lot of people that there is issues with the choice of books that we have and diverse diversity in the industry and, you know, revolution, revolt, that takes numbers, it takes people. But every time we continuously become and reduce ourselves into these smaller and smaller labels, you reduce that um, power of the critical mass to make any form of difference because we're just squabbling all around amongst each other, not on the people that hold the power. And that's the issue here, isn't it? Um, and you've, you've mentioned the word Kirkus Review, and I want to talk about the Kirkus Review because this is, to me, the epitome of this problem <laughs> that we're facing at the moment. So the Kirkus Review revolves around a book called American Hearts by Laura Moriarty. Now, Kirkus Review, if you get a review on your book uh, as an author, that's great. If you get a starred review by Kirkus Review, it just gives your book this like next step up. It means you're going to be more successful if you hadn't had that platform. Kirkus Review got an editor Um, so a reviewer to look at this book. They specifically got a Muslim reviewer to look at this book because the characters in American Hearts follows a 15-year-old girl called Sarah Mary, and I'm actually just going to read the the censored review from Kirkus Review. Mm -hmm. 15-year-old Sarah Mary will do anything for a sensitive younger brother, but she never thought that would mean running from the law. The setting is the Midwestern United States, the time is the not-too-distant future. A Muslim registry is in effect, and Muslims are being bused to detention centres called safety zones and mass. This doesn't bother Sarah Mary, a strong-minded, fiercely loyal and protective teenager whose mother has abandoned her and Caleb to their ultra-conservative Christian aunt. Her indifference is forced to change when Caleb's compassion for a Muslim in hiding gets her involved in a plan to help this Iranian woman escape. Together, Sarah, Mary, and her new companion face extreme dangers, prejudices, and disappointments, and unexpected kindnesses from their fellow Americans as they fight nearly impossible odds to get her through several states and over the border undetected. Moriarty creates a frighteningly believable setting of fear and violent nativism gone awry as she tried to help Sadaf find the freedom she sought when she immigrated to the United States. Sarah Mary's ignorance is an effective world-building device, 
but it is problematic that Sadaf is seen only through the white protagonist's filter. Still, some will find value in the mostly intense exploration of extremist patriotic ideology, the dangers of brainwashing and blind spots, and some of the components of our nation's social fabric that threaten to destroy us, such as segregation, greed, mistrust, and mob mentalities. So this is the um, new review. The star has been pulled. And at the bottom of this review, it says, a thought-provoking, chilling read with a controversial premise. The review of of American Heart has been edited for clarity and to provide additional insights from the reviewer from its original appearance on Kirkus.com, which was reviewed from the site with this statement. Now I'm going to read the statement that the editors from Kirkus supplied for the reasoning of pulling the star and changing the review. And this is a note from the editor-in-chief. Quote, it is a policy of Kirkus Reviews that books with diverse subject matter and protagonists are assigned to own voices reviewers, writers who can draw upon lived experience when evaluating texts. One assignment of the Review of American Hearts was no exception to this rule and was reviewed by an observant Muslim person of colour, facts shared with her permission. Our reviewer is an expert in children's and young adult literature and well-versed in the dangers of white savior narratives. She found that American Heart offers a useful warning about the direction we're headed in as far as racial enmity is concerned. The issue of diversity in children's and teen literature is, a, is of paramount importance to Kirkus, and we appreciate the power language wills in discussion of the problems. As a result, we've removed the starred review from Kirkus.com after determining that, while we believe our reviewer's opinion is worthy and valid, some of the wording fell short of meeting our standards for clarity and sensitivity, and we failed to make the thoughtful edits our readers deserve. The editors are evaluating the review and will make a determination about correction or retraction after careful consideration in collaboration with the reviewer. At Kirkus Reviews, we will continue to evaluate editorial solutions for better reflecting the expertise of our reviewers and their uniform appreciation for responsible portrayals of marginalised groups. We appreciate the discussion of these issues and celebrate the free exchange of opinions and ideas. Yeah, I mean, obviously they they don't. Um, I feel mm-hmm. very sorry for that reviewer. Uh, that's that's awful. Yeah, um, I, really. I mean, did they decide that her her viewpoint was illegitimate on certain levels? Is this is this what? They were, who, who made this decision, one wonders? So my understanding was that she reviewed the book and she said it was good. And in terms of the lunacy, can I say that? It's just they've specifically chosen, Kirkus Review, Kirkus.com, a Muslim woman of experience um, to review this book. Her review got attacked and suddenly it's like your review and your opinion is not good enough. You haven't provided the right answers. We're retracting what you said. And there is actually another article in the Vulture where the Kirkus editor-in-chief explains why they altered that American Heart review. And they he talks about how they um, talked about it with this woman and, you know, it was only if she agreed that they would make the changes. I don't know this woman's um, background. I don't know her situation. But if the chief and editor came to me and said, look, we need to make some changes, 
is not sensitive enough, would I have the courage to say, no, I stand by what I said? I don't think I could in that situation. And I, I'm, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but I might suggest that could have been what happened. Well, yeah. And I mean, obviously, if she says no, is she going to get more reviews? These are all income streams. Um, mm. I mean, she's not just a, a person with lived experience as a Muslim. She's also a, a subject matter expert in terms of children's literature, white savior narratives. I mean, my goodness, how much more qualified do you have to get? I mean, yeah. and, and if and- her opinion... Like you edit that sort of stuff for sense and mm. really given that she's literally a sensitivity reviewer, you shouldn't have to edit it for sensitivity. So basically, I mean, this is clearly a person that, that has experience in writing. She'd have to be. Um, it, it's astounding to me that anything besides a copy edit would have been done anyway. And ultimately, Kirk has signed off on this to then say – that the editor, uh, sorry, the uh, reviewer failed to be sensitive enough in her language. Well, you know, excuse me, uh, but she's the expert they brought in because they don't know any better. So, yeah. I mean, where where are they getting this from? It's yeah. it's craven. I mean, it's there's issues abound in this. What's happened here? I mean, I wish I could say that it's fiction, but it's not. This is real life, and. Um, to add on to that, um, so people were objecting to this novel, American Hearts, before it had even been published. So a month before, so September the 7th, someone wrote, and excuse my language, folks, on Goodreads Review, fuck your white saving narratives. And then eventually the book was published on October the 10th. So unless they got an earlier version of this book, how do you even know what's in this book? Does it actually follow a white saviour narrative? Is it a white saviour narrative or is it us being able to engage in this young girl's world to appreciate some of the challenges that these people face? (sighs) From a purely, uh, from the shape of the thing, yes, it is, it is reminiscent of a white saviour narrative, but, but it, you know, intent and people say intent doesn't matter. And really like at some point, Intent has to matter. If what you're showing is this young girl's journey into empathy, that is as much the object of the story as her helping a refugee. Mm. And it seems, you know, if indeed any depiction of an act of kindness or empathy will be seen as a slight, uh, you know, I mean, for, 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 for kids reading a story like that, you know, the idea of getting past your prejudices and, you know, making a difference for someone who is not from your background, surely that is a good message. I mean, white savior narratives, you know, they, they kind of have typically followed a, a sort of a logic that the other is, you know, savage or misguided or their society is not sustainable and we've come in, you know, the white saviors and sorted them out. It's a, it's a missionary sort of yeah. idea. Um, I don't think that, that's, that this doesn't sound like that at all. 
And and really, if she had taken Siddharth's point of view, would that not have then been problematic from the other side of the coin with own voices? I mean, was she meant to collaborate with another writer? That would, in fact, be a very interesting exercise. But wouldn't they both be then transgressing in various directions according to this logic? It just collapses every time you scrutinize it. Yeah. And to add insult to injury, some other stuff happened. So, you know, the reviews got uh, altered. And then the following Tuesday after the review, Moriarty posted the text of both reviews in a comment thread on her personal Facebook page. The magazine reportedly called her publisher repeatedly to demand that she take the comments down. Now, I mean, cynically, we would say um, that Obviously, Kirkus Review didn't want everyone to know that there was two different versions that they had out there maybe, but uh, the chief and editor, you know, describes this as a standard fair issue. Authors and publishers are only permitted to accept 35% of a review for marketing purposes. That's um, the chief editor's uh, explanation there. And another thing that I want to bring up, so again, quoting from the article, Yet while investigating criticisms may be business as usual, the chief editor admits this is the first time during his tenure that a review has been pulled and altered in this way. And while the Muslim woman who wrote the original review was involved in the editing process, the decision to retract the star was made in full collaboration with the reviewer, he says, altering the review does not appear to have been her idea in the first place. According to Smith, Kirk has concluded internally that edits would be made before reaching out to the reviewer. Um, so, quote from the chief and editor, we wanted her to consider if changing what we thought was sort of reductive word choice and adding deeper context is something she thought might be appropriate, he says, though he, end quote, though he emphasises it was ultimately her call. Quote, I did not dictate that to her. She made that decision on her own, end quote. The word choice in question likely refers to text in the original review that referred to Sadaf as a disillusioned immigrant, which some commenters took exception to. Kirkus's critics are sceptical of that claim. Among the more cynical takes on the controversy is that Kirkus used the reviewer's identity as a shield, only to then suppress her voice when it didn't toe the line. The chief in editor bristles at that. It's like no one believes that this reviewer has a mind and can change her opinion. Is that so difficult to believe? Doesn't that sound like Kosoko Jackson? Um, yeah. When he, when he says, why is it so hard to get? Well, I mean, you know, I have never, so I, I used to publish a lot of reviews or, or publish. I used to write a lot of reviews for publication and absolutely, you know, they would edit them. And sometimes they would edit them in a way that I ended up saying the opposite of what I had actually said. Um, and certainly there was no back and forth with this because it's, it's fast paced. But I have never had one of my reviews pulled uh, because yeah. it offended anyone. And isn't it interesting that a Muslim woman, uh, you know, is is the first reviewer to have had this treatment. You know, well done, Kirkus. You're really pushing the diversity envelope there. So, yeah, I mean, it's 
there's always going to be someone who's offended. There's always going to be someone who complains. Uh, the question is, you know, are you giving a platform for voices? It seems to me that with that reviewer, Kirkus did manage that, and then they managed to, you know, steal uh, steal a defeat from the jaws of victory, basically. Uh, I don't think yeah. they've covered themselves in glory here. And, you know, always with all these things, it's always sort of uh, the, 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 the little guy <laughs> who's getting, you know, hammered here. Sensitivity readers are being targeted as as somehow making editorial changes this reviewer apparently you know wasn't sensitive enough uh to the views of muslim people you know it's not it's not kirkus it's it's not the publishers it's always people beneath uh who are being marginalized yeah. and exploited really annoys me uh really and, and does the cheek of saying that you're doing it to promote diversity I mean, what a scandal. It it really mm. is cynical. And I kind of feel like I just want to apologize for her experience. Like that is just, you're, you're there to give an honest review. You had issues with the book or you liked the book. You gave an honest review at that time. And then to just get kind of shoved into the spotlight, I don't believe that. I mean, it sounds like they came to her already with ideas of wanting to edit her piece and what they were going to edit it to. And they took her voice and her power away from her. Yeah, he did take her power away from her, you know, and and it's it's incredibly warped, the, the whole thing. It seems so back to front. Uh, mm. And it does seem to be an attack a sort of a, a well-meaning but completely misguided attack on diverse voices and the platforms that they're, you know, occasionally allowed uh, to speak from. Like she wrote a review and they edited it and that's it. And beyond that, if if they wanted to, to follow up, um, then that's fine. But, you know, the, the – uh, the starred review, my understanding is that um, these are feature reviews, uh, the starred reviews, and it's it's a platform of exposure for the reviewer. Yeah. Uh, do we have the reviewer's name? That is like, like does this honestly, person even okay, get a name in all this? Because, <laughs> yeah, it feels so reductive. No. So I'm on the Kirkus Reviews website. I've got the name of the novel, American Heart, by Laura Moriarty, the release date, the statement, and I can't see her name. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's problematic, isn't it? On, on just so many levels, it's hard to even find a foothold. What should we be more annoyed about? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to go down yeah. this rabbit hole. <laughs> um, Me neither. Yeah. Me neither. All right. So yeah. Okay. So so this is the situation we're in. We're we're in these series of paradoxes. Now there's an argument to be made for abandoning the own voices uh, campaign. And there's a there was a really interesting study done in 2013. 
at the the New School for Social Research, which I believe is in is that in New York as well? I think it might be. And so the article I'm I'm referring to here is reading literary fiction improves mind reading skills, finds a study from the New School for Social Research. Now, so heated debates about the quantifiable value of arts and literature are a common feature of American social discourse, or indeed in Australian social discourse. Two researchers from the New School for Social Research have published a paper in Science demonstrating, that's the publication, Science, demonstrating that reading literary fiction enhances a set of skills and thought processes fundamental to complex social relationships and functional societies. PhD candidate David Comer-Kidd and his advisor, Professor of Psychology Emmanuel Castano, performed five experiments to measure the effect of reading literary fiction on participants' theory of mind. Uh, from here on out, we'll call it uh, TOM. The complex social skill of mind reading to understand others' mental states. Their paper which appeared in the October 3rd issue of Science entitled Reading Literary Fiction Improves Theory of Mind. To, uh, to choose text for their study, Kidd and Castano relied on expert evaluations to define three types of writing, literary fiction, popular fiction, and non-fiction. Literary fiction works were represented by excerpts from recent National Book Award finalists or winners of the 2012 Penn O. Henry Prize for short fiction. Popular fiction works were drawn from Amazon.com bestsellers or an anthology of recent popular fiction, and non-fiction works were selected from the Smithsonian Magazine. So these are all worthy candidates, you know, insofar as one can compare apples and oranges. They're, they're pretty tasty apples and oranges. So <clears throat> after participants read text from one of the three genres, Kid and Castano tested their TOM capabilities using several well-established measures. One of these measures is the reading the mind in the eyes test, which asks participants to look at black and white photographs of actors' eyes and indicate the emotion expressed by that actor. Another one is the Yoni test, which includes both affective trials and cognitive ones. Quote, we used several measures of TOM to make sure the effects were not specific to one type of measure, thus accumulating converging evidence for our hypothesis, the researchers said. Across the five experiments, Kidd and Castano found that participants who were assigned to read literary fiction performed significantly better on the TOM tests than did participants assigned to the other experimental groups who did not differ from one another. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned this, but there was a fourth cohort who didn't read anything. I guess you'd say they were the control group. The study shows that not just any fiction is effective in fostering TOM. Rather, the literary quality of the fiction is the determining factor. The literary texts used in the experiments had vastly different content and subject matter, but all produced similarly high TOM results. Quote, experiment one showed that reading literary fiction relative to nonfiction improves performance on an effective TOM task. Experiments two through five showed that this effect is specific to literary fiction the paper reports. 
Kidan Castano suggests that the reason for literary fiction's impact on TOM is a direct result of the ways in which it involves the reader. Unlike popular fiction, literary fiction requires intellectual engagement and creative thought from its readers. Quote, features of the modern literary novel set it apart from most best-selling thrillers or romances. Through the use of stylistic devices, literary fiction defamiliarizes its readers. Kidding Castano right? Just as in real life, the worlds of literary fiction are replete with complicated individuals whose inner lives are rarely easily discerned but warrant exploration. We see this research as a step towards better understanding of the interplay between a specific cultural artifact, literary fiction, and effective and cognitive processes, Kidd and Castano say. I feel like, I mean, theory of mind. I mean, what we're, what we're really talking about here is empathy um, and, and imagination. And, and the reason why this article, you know, pleased me so much, besides the fact that I, I you know, a big fan of literary fiction, um, is that they use the term defamiliarize. Now, we've talked before about defamiliarization and how defamiliarization is the underpinning of all art. If you, you know, if you want a, a quick answer to what is art, it is an expression that defamiliarizes. And there are lots of versions of that, like stand-up comedy is all built on defamiliarization. So what they're essentially saying, the thing about literary fiction is it is more character-driven and there are not familiar tropes. So the nature of of popular fiction or, or genre fiction, if you want to call it that, is that it hits certain beats and these things are familiar. They become ingrained in our experience and they are in no way challenging to that experience. You know, lots of fun to read, but they are, uh, you know, very constraining and they are very much aimed at a particular kind of audience. They do not uh, set themselves on a path towards a diverse audience or yeah. indeed, how about this, uh, a series of diverse readings I think we um, talked about this. We tend to read them. Did, um, with uh, readerly and writerly text. Exactly, and you know it's nice when the psychologists get in there and and basically add some you know extra credibility to this concept. Um, but essentially, you know, it's important they're saying for us as as uh, you know a species. Um, to empathize and to hear others' stories and to engage with others' stories as readers. But it is not that big a step to say that we should engage with them as reader slash writers. Uh, you know, the, the part of your brain you use when you, when you are literally writing, using a pen or a keyboard is different to the part of the brain you're using when you're reading. Uh, there are different processes going on. And at the same time, I would suggest to you that when you read, you're also writing because you've got all your lived experience and it is being injected into the thing you're reading. Yeah. So, so basically I guess what this says to me is that it's actually important for people to write other voices besides their own. Uh, 
as as a, as a, in effect an offshoot of um, of people reading voices that aren't their own. Uh, now they may disagree with those voices, uh, but that doesn't mean there isn't something worthwhile therein, and that there isn't a conversation or a dialogue between you know the the text and the diversity of readers that would be useful. So I think from my point of view, this study kind of lays the groundwork for why Own Voices is a terrific marketing campaign. But for readers, for you and me and everyone else out there who likes reading books, this is not a great thing uh, at all. Um, And I I wanted to finish my part of this um, by referring to my hero, uh, Roland Barthes. Now, my reading of Barthes, uh, you know, Barthes and I differ um, in that, you know, he uh, is French and spoke spoke French. I can only read Barthes in translation. Um, he, he was gay and I am not. Uh, and so we have a number of key differences. So when I talk about Barthes and what I understand about Barthes, it isn't him. It's my reading of him, uh, as is always the case when anyone comments on anything. It feels it just needs to be said. This is, again, not a short quote, but I think it really is important. Uh, I'm going to sort of take it step by step. So this is from the death of the author, and this is the essay that Barthes became sort of really famous for. If people have heard of him at all, it's usually around the death of the author. So I quote, in his story, Sarazine, Balzac, speaking of a castrato disguised as a woman, writes this sentence, quote, it was woman with her sudden fears, her irrational whims, her instinctive fears, her unprovoked bravado, her daring and her delicious delicacy of feeling, end quote. Who is speaking in this way? Is it the story's hero concerned to ignore the castrato concealed beneath the woman? Is it the man Balzac, endowed by his personal experience with a philosophy of woman? Is it the author Balzac, professing certain literary ideas of femininity? Is it universal wisdom, romantic psychology? It will always be impossible to know, for the good reason that all writing is itself this special voice, consisting of several indiscernible voices, and that literature is precisely the invention of this voice, to which we cannot assign a specific origin. Literature is that neuter, that composite, that oblique, into which every subject escapes, the trap where all identity is lost, beginning with the very identity of the body that writes. So that's the first part of my quote and i wonder do you do you have any objections to that characterization shannon um, i'm a, i'm a post-structuralist i fully subscribe to this reading and it, it is a word that i'm glad you brought up because in the back of my mind doing this research i have been thinking about the term post-structuralism and the death of the author so the issue with the hashtag own voices and the issues about writing about things outside of your experience etc etc it's all it all relates back to the author and if we just scrub the author out of this equation would we be having these discussions that's that's a exactly and i I don't i don't read for the author i never have um i didn't as a kid 
Uh, and then I found this philosophy that made sense to me. In very, very broad and brutish terms, structuralism was an attempt to remove the author. Post-structuralism brought in the idea of intertextuality and that texts speak to each other, both the text of the reader and the text they're reading, but also other texts. So, you know, they, they have a gravitational pull. And, and that's the idea of it. And so meaning is housed within this space that constantly changes and a dialogue between ideas. And I think that's a beautiful idea. And I think it's an accurate representation of the way literature works in the, you know, we build empathy because meanings, my meanings, the text meanings are in a sense, translating each other. Um, the second bit I want to read you. Probably this has always been the case. Once an action is recounted for intransitive ends and no longer in order to act directly upon reality, that is finally external to any function but the very exercise of the symbol, this disjunction occurs. The voice loses its origin. The author enters his own death. Writing begins. Nevertheless, the feeling about this phenomenon has been variable. In primitive societies, narrative is never undertaken by a person, but by a mediator, shaman or speaker, whose performance may be admired, that is, his mastery of the narrative code, but not his genius. The author is a modern figure, produced no doubt by our society insofar as, at the end of the Middle Ages, with English empiricism, French rationalism and the personal faith of the Reformation, it discovered the prestige of the individual, or to put it more nobly, of the human person. Hence, it is logical that with regard to literature, it should be positivism, resume, and the result of capitalist ideology, which has accorded the greatest importance to the author's person. And I think we've seen this play out all throughout our discussion. The yeah. author still rules in manuals of literary history, in biographies of writers, in magazine interviews, and even in the awareness of literary men anxious to unite by their private journals, their work, uh, sorry, their person and their work. The image of literature to be found in contemporary culture is tyrannically centered on the author, his person, his history, his tastes, his passions. Criticism still consists most of the time in saying that Baudelaire's work is the failure of the man Baudelaire. Van Gogh's work is madness. Tchaikovsky's his vice. The explanation of the work is always sought in the man who has produced it, as if through the more or less transparent allegory of fiction, it was always finally the voice of one and the same person, the author, which delivered his confidence. Again, we see own voices. This is the idea of a confessional thing, of a pure thing. It has all the hallmarks of a kind of a religious understanding. And all of this stuff is, is driven either by that impulse or a capitalist desire to exploit, uh, you know, products, uh, to the last drop of ink. Uh, you know, and, and I believe there are many well-meaning people in this, in this discussion, but I, I hope they're aware of all this. And if they're rejecting it, I hope they're rejecting it because they've been convinced of another argument, not just because they're completely ignorant to this point of view. Uh, I've got one more passage, uh, and I hope this isn't too boring. Not at all. Thank you. Okay, so let us return to Balzac's sentence. No one, that is no person, 
utters it. Its source, its voice is not to be located, and yet it is perfectly read. This is because the true locus of writing is reading. Another very specific example can make this understood. Recent investigations have shed light upon the constitutively ambiguous nature of Greek tragedy, the text of which is woven with words that have double meanings, each character understanding them unilaterally. This perpetual misunderstanding is precisely what is meant by the tragic. So just to explain that, um, tragedy is built on the idea that we know what the characters don't know. And so we begin to see that they're in trouble and they move towards it inexorably. And that is how we build up this concept of tragedy in the, in the classical sense. Yeah. So our understanding trumps the text's understanding. And that's, it relies on that to function. Yet there is someone who understands each word in its duplicity and understands further, one might say, the very deafness of the characters speaking in front of him. This someone is precisely the reader. In this way is revealed the whole being of writing. A text consists of multiple writings, issuing from several cultures and entering into dialogue with each other, into parody, into contestation. But there is one place where this multiplicity is collected, united, and this place is not the author. As we have hitherto said, it was but the reader. The reader is the very space in which are inscribed without any being lost, all the citations a writing consists of. The unity of a text is not in its origin, it is in its destination, but this destination can no longer be personal. The reader is a man without history, without biography, without psychology. He is only that someone who holds gathered into a single field all the paths of which the text is constituted. And I think that's where the Laura Moriarty book has its value, you know, if I read that character, I don't imagine I'm me. I imagine I'm her imagining somebody else. Yeah. And all three of us, in a sense, are working on an imaginative project. This is why it's absurd to hear the new writing condemned in the name of a humanism which hypocritically appoints itself the champion of the reader's rights. The reader has never been the concern of classical criticism. For it, there is no other man in literature but the one who writes. We are now beginning to be the dupes no longer of such anti-phrases by which our society proudly champions precisely what it dismisses, ignores, smothers, or destroys. We know that to restore to writing its future, we must reverse its myth. The birth of the reader must be ransomed by the death of the author. I think that's incredibly powerful stuff, and it's had an enormous influence on my thought and the direction of my life from the time I read it, which was in my early 20s. But we see this. I mean, our society proudly champions precisely what it dismisses, ignores, smothers, or destroys. Surely we can see that the, the hypothetical diverse reader, the actual sensitivity reader, the sensitivity reviewer, all these people are being crushed under the wheels of uh, an idea of diversity that doesn't exist at any point in the process. Even the idea that a text is diverse and that you and I will have different readings of a text 
and that a text which is a misreading of someone else's perspective, which all texts are, might actually be very valuable to the person who reads it. And that person has agency and they shouldn't be told what to read. And and they should have access to a huge diversity of voices. I 100% agree with that. But the concept of authenticity is just another illusion that is placed down so that, that publishers can make money selling books. Uh, you know, authenticity exists in the person of the reader and that person could be any one of us. And that's one truly democratic, inclusive, accessible idea. And it's the only one that I have heard in the uh, three to four hours we've been talking. <laughs> and um, kind of, I mean, how long ago did Bart's write that before I go on to the point that I want to make? 1968. He elaborates on it at length for the remainder of his career, which was another 12 years until his, uh, until his death. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, this is something that I would, I would love to discuss further with our listeners. I, I feel very passionately about this, and I really, uh, as you know, uh, Shannon, I feel very passionate about expanding literature, multiplying voices, having discourse, having debates, uh, looking at old texts and new and seeing how they work with each other, not, not revising the old, maybe reimagining them. Wouldn't it be interesting to see a reimagination of Roald Dahl? Could it be done? I'm not sure. I'd, I'd love to see it. And I mean, ultimately, it probably already exists in one form or another because we're inevitably influenced. And, you know, how about if, if Roald Dahl is such a problem, how about, you know, we look at who was influenced by Dahl, the works they created, and how about, you know, giving them a Netflix deal? I agree. And I think that, I mean, it's, this is a two-parter. A week before, we talked about just banning books in general and book burning. Within this, there's all these different levers that are getting pulled to remove a book or a piece of literature from the readers. And at every step of that, it's saying that readers aren't responsible enough or they don't have enough agency or thought process or critical um, awareness to make their own decisions. And that is completely wrong. Like I disagree on so many fronts. As you said, like us as readers in the end are the ultimate losers from everything that's happening. And, and it's, it, you know, again, it's, this is not new. This is not because of the advent of social media. This has been the problem since year dot. Voices have always been silenced for one reason or another, and often for pretty spurious, uh, you know, co commercial reasons that, that don't necessarily, uh, you know, bear themselves out in reality. Also, that the, the logic of, of Baudelaireism, which is being applied today, was designed to protect children. People should think about that. Apparently, we, all of us, are the children to somebody. They, they feel that we are, you know, not able to make our own decisions. And, and frankly, I think kids can. I, I think they can make their own critical decisions and should be encouraged to do that, to become discerning uh, and critically minded. And I suppose 
I mean, I mentioned in part one that we're dealing with a wicked problem because there's a whole bunch of um, stakeholders in what we're talking about. There's the authors, the writers, the readers, uh, publishers and editors, sensitivity readers. And for me, after this discussion, doing the research, I think there is a responsibility for authors. And that is, you know, do your research, engage and immerse yourself in the culture or the voice that you are wanting to explore and imagine and write about. You know, just do your research, make friends, talk to people, just do your job <laughs> essentially and write it in a way that um, you write a good story. If you- Additionally, there's a responsibility for readers. We all have this responsibility and that the first premise is read the book. Don't just make assumptions and go online and make a review, just read the book and then read widely and read openly. You know, apply critical awareness analysis to every book that you read. And the thing with social media, I mean, like you said, this has been an issue from day dot. But I feel social media has exacerbated the problem because you are rewarded on social media for foul play, for being angry. And then finally, responsibility for publishers and editors. Increase wages. Just increase wages because this allows diversity in these industries so we can get these types of books out there. Increase programs and scholarships that help people from diverse backgrounds get into the publishing industry and become writers and authors. And, you know, if you don't like what the big five are doing, you mentioned who those were, start your own publishing house. And a couple of people are doing this and that is great. And um, I think that's a, it's a good point to say this is something that Gareth and I have been thinking and talking about for the past eight months, I would say now, we are working on starting our own mm. publishing house. And I'm really excited and I'm going to be really excited. So is Gareth when we get the chance to share that when we've got all the setup organized because we see literature as important. This is the future of fiction and we want to protect it and have the right as readers to have diverse books that we can get involved with. Yeah, and I mean, you know, uh, so we we want it to be an inclusive and accessible model. Uh, Like I come from a disability background and I take this stuff extremely seriously. The the ways that that we can ensure that that is the case is uh, we intend to be extremely transparent about our business model, the way we pay people, uh, you know, what we are paying people. It won't change depending on, you know, what you look like or what your background is. There'll, there'll be a transparent set rate. Um, and really when you undertake something like this, you're going to have a lot of blindnesses. It, there's no point where, uh, Shannon and I could be different people or many more people, and we'd just be fine then. You know, we at some point, you're going to hit a blind spot. And so, you know, we we will be asking for community engagement in terms of what we're putting together. How could it be more accessible? How could it be more inclusive? Um, with the goal of uh, promoting the very best writing that comes into our orbit, uh, and it's not about who wrote it. It's about what has been written and what, you know, our readers, uh, are keen to engage with. And I, and I think part of what we'll be doing is encouraging and challenging our readers to, to see the value in all kinds of fiction, because all of us have a limit 
in that regards. We have uh, our interests tend naturally to be narrow. I know mine are. Uh, so, you know, stepping outside of yourself, being challenged, and it, it, that will be enriching for everyone. And and I think uh, I think if we had to have a motto, it's something along the lines of readers first, all readers. I would agree on that motto. And um, this was a big day. And I, I hope our audience uh, takes a lot out of this. Um, it was as much as well researched as we could have done given the time, given who we are. And, you know, we would love feedback and communication on this because it is such a valid point and issue right now. It's happening right now. Um, so definitely like and subscribe. Uh, we also had our website, thepleasurelytext.com. Send us an email and we do respond. So we would love to hear from you guys. And I think that's all for us. And um, next week, we actually have a guest fellow writer on and she's going to be talking about her experience doing a structural or a substantive edit on her novel. And that was a really fun uh, one to record, so I'm looking forward to that as well. And so we hope you join, uh, tune in then next week on The Pleasure of the Text. See you guys. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>